0: Thanks a lot for hosting me, Andrew. Uh, but what I'm here to do is to offer you, uh, as again, a set of practitioners, you much, much less scholarly and academic, but focusing on the theory of deterrence and then as it applies to uh, modern conflicts today. Part of the reason why is because functional topics like this are really at the heart of current debates of what to do with countries like Russia. And a lot of times, when you get into them, what you find is most of policy thinking is very much scenario-based or war game-based but it really lacks a lot of foundational understanding and underpinnings, either in international politics or in cross-cutting functional fields. So it becomes a conversation about what to do with a specific adversary over a specific problem set on a particular issue based a lot on scenarios and simulations of war wargaming. It's not very well grounded in, in broader thinking. So this kind of, kind of more of a foundational lecture on deterrence that I'll try to make apply to the extent I can. Um, I'm a huge fan of Dr. Strange of the film. I don't know how many of you are familiar, suspect many are. I will tell you from my experience in the Department of Defense, this film is not a parody. It is a documentary, and it can be <laughs> safely made today. I've had these interactions with many of my colleagues and contemporaries and counterparts, and they literally go like this movie, okay? And there are people that are currently featured, that are featured in this film as composites, and you could safely make this movie about other people that are currently primarily featured in the Defense Establishment, right? Um, so, uh, there'll be a lot of references to it, because the topic can be a little bit theoretical and, and stale, if you don't introduce some comedy. So uh, essence of deterrence. Well, um, in essence, deterrence is basically <coughs> threats made uh, by one party to convince another party from initiating a, a desired course of action, right? And one side must convince the others not to carry out unintended actions, because the costs that would incur are either too high or the benefits are too low. Um, Two people that really are foundational to this debate were Herman Kahn, Thomas Schelling. Doctor Strange, who live in the film, is a composite of these characters along with others. Um, uh, probably mostly Herman Kahn rather than Schelling. And these are some of the foundational books that were written at the time. And this debate repeats and recreates itself in history. So as we now talk about great power competition and conflict with countries like Russia and China, the terms is back in vogue. And a lot of people today are very much having the same debates that they were having in the 50s and 60s. And oftentimes during debate you will hear people say, well, I'm a Schelling guy and I'm the Herman Kahn guy. And you're basically seeing this, the, the uh, sort of ideological, uh, uh, theoretical children of these individuals um, dominate the policy establishment today. At least in the United States, right? I, I will not speak to the UK. Um, and the terms, of course, became front and center during the nuclear age because the consequences of war, a nuclear war between pure nuclear states, was absolutely devastating, and eventually, nuclear war began to seem as something that was unwinnable. Um, so, international security became a lot of conversation about how you engage in the right combination of behaviors, probably communicate to your adversary what you will and will not do in order to have them take certain actions. Um, all right, so, uh, key kind of theoretical tenets of deterrence, as always, is this lecture is going to possibly be sort of uh, a mile wide and an inch deep. But deterrence is on the mind of the adversary generated by threats promises. It's a persuasion of an opponent, the opponent that costs and risk of a given course of action they might take are definitely going to outweigh the benefits. Deterrence is really simple, right? It's, it's important to remember strategy and deterrence is not the same as convincing a plan, convincing that a, a, a plan for military victory will succeed. So deterrence is not a plan for war fighting, right? To achieve military victory over an adversary. They're not the same. It's principally a psychological interaction with your opponent, and it's you trying to convince them of something, a particular intended action, that it won't succeed, or that the costs greatly outweigh the potential benefits. Um, But deterrence is particularly useful. Why? It's particularly useful in scenarios where military victory may not be achievable, or when defense against an adversary's course of action is not possible. There are two cases that we clearly see. One, you simply can't win. You can't overmatch or dominate or a particular opponent right? Two, defense isn't very possible, such as with nuclear weapons, right? Um, and you simply can't sustain, you can't mount an effective potential defense against them, so how do you deter them against particular course of action? Deterrence is fundamentally a strategy of limited means. It is based on proportionality, you have to balance the compliance of what your adversary is going to do with the amount of threat you pose to them, and you also have to assure them. This one part of the terms that from a practitioner field perspective, most people get wrong. So part a lot of cases where deterrence doesn't work very well is one, it's not proportional or sufficiently reciprocal. The amount of threat is not equal to what you're trying to prevent them from doing. Um, it's not reciprocal. You're asking them for something they can't give you necessarily. And third one is there's no assurance involved in it, which is part of deterrence. is you tell people, all right, if you do this, bad things will happen to you. But if you don't do it, I promise I will not do bad things to you just because, right? It's important for other people to understand there's a cause effect, but you will not simply punish them because you have the power to do it, right? So they must be assured that actually um, you're deterring them for a particular intended action and bad things won't happen with them nonetheless. Um, and, And finally, a lot of deterrence is oriented around signaling bargaining, right? Which is there are strong challenges in deterrence, oriented around how you establish coercive credibility and particularly, as I'll talk later in this lecture, the resolve part of coercive credibility. How do you communicate the fact that you have skin in the game, that you're vested in it, that you have strong interests at stake, and that you will actually fight and you'll follow through with what you say you will do, even though the entire concept of this is you're trying to do this so you don't actually have the fight, right? You're trying to deter the fight from happening, so you have to be as convincing as you can, and as I'll show you, that's not so easy. In part because whenever anybody's trying to prevent anything, they all sound convincing. right? this um, so is so a rough overview. right. Um, so first part of deterrence. in US mostly deterrence came about as a formulated discussion where uh, deterrence is really about establishing course of credibility vis-a-vis your adversary. and course of credibility was formulated as capabilities um, plus uh, resolve, time signaling. So I will tackle what I find to be the much more important part of the deterrence discussion, which is the issue of resolve. Resolve is really correlated with interest at stake, and whoever cares more about the object of contention in theory has higher resolve, right? And so what you get is robust capabilities that you know, are basically supported by strong resolve, or conversely, a high degree of resolve that you may have, but you have very little capability that you can actually show an adversary of what you can do about it. Don't provide necessarily a credible deterrent, so, credibility is really important. Um, the other big challenge is how you communicate to the adversary uh, through both words and actions, right? So, you're basically targeting strategic communication to your audience. And here's the real challenge. So, in order to make the terrorist works, you need two kinds of people. And these two kinds of people in behind closed doors normally fight. You need subject matter experts who are regionalists on your adversary, it's people like me and Andrew. You need people who are functionalists, who understand strategy and deterrence and compellence, but normally don't know much about the countries involved. Whether it's China, whether it's Russia, whether it's Iran, was North Korea, is the same thing to them. In theory, the theory should work, right? In practice, not always. Um, so this is a conversation where people who understand the theory and who are in charge of making policy, and people who make policy are almost always journalists, at least in the U.S. policy community have to get together with regionals who explain to them the psychology of the adversary so they can tailor their message and convince them because it's a psychological interaction with the other side and if you don't know them, you can't deter them because how can you possibly tailor your message to signal them if you don't know much about them? What's going to work with Russia is probably not going to work necessarily with Iran, right? That's just the reality of it. Um, And and why knowing the adversary is very important is because, one, proportionality. Well, the first question on deterrence is, how much do they want it? If they want it a lot, if you think they want a lot, then you need... Way more deterrence, right? Way more course of credibility. Maybe you need to show much more resolve. Maybe you need much more capability. In most policy, in most policy debates, people say I need more both. Uh, Often in interactions, I say that you know, principal policy debates that I've seen in the United States are typically between two camps. There's people who think we need more, and then there's people who think we need more, and more, and the debate is between the more and the more times two, or three, or four, right? And 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 principally, I mean, that's generally the positive because more always has good stakeholders and people believe that more is better because they think activity is achievement. And nobody's really attracted to less. Um, So it's important that uh, you take more's actions, you communicate the threat, but it does have to be very much adversary-specific. It does not work across all adversaries. Uh, All right. Next debate, sort of denial versus punishment. Um, Here I'm simplifying a bit, but there are principally two strategic modes of deterrence one aims to deny the benefits of the action, basically, they won't succeed. That's the easiest one, right? And that's the turns by denial, Um, and you're affecting the calculus of the adversary by basically telling them you won't succeed in your plan, you won't be able to invade or take this territory, you won't win. The other one's punishment, which is basically raises prohibitive costs. It says, you may succeed, but I'm gonna impose such punishing costs, the relative to how much you want it, trust me, you're not gonna want enough, right? That, That ultimately the cost will be prohibitive to dissuade you from wanting to take on this action. Um, they are not exclusive approaches. There are many times where they are complementary. One example would be, let's say, uh, flexible response nuclear strategy that was taken up by NATO through the 60s and 70s, where you combine both uh, basically a graduate strategy where part of your strategy is oriented around denial and part of your strategy is oriented around punishment. Why? Well, you have conventional forces, let's say, for denial. The adversary may not succeed. And you integrate that with tactical nuclear weapons. And then your strategic nuclear arsenal is about punishment, right? Retaliation. So you have two pieces of the puzzle right there. One is you reduce the likelihood that the adversary will succeed in the military attack. The other one is you have a very credible threat of just you know um, mass retaliation and tremendous punishment. Um, no points for effort. So I have a lot of arguments with colleagues that say, well, we need to do more, as always. More, and more has lots of people in Ireland. so we need more deterrence. And so why? Well. Deterrence is not good enough, we need a will be some action. We need robust deterrence, some robust year deterrence. That, for the record, is not a thing. There's no school of thought called robust year deterrence, or any other adjective of deterrence. Deterrence does not give a lot of good points for effort. Here's a good example. There's a set of people, this marginal line construction of World War II, that thought would be good deterrence by denial, very staple thinking, right? Build this great line of tremendous fortifications. Some people did not build their side of the line, right? They may be Belgium, okay? So this part of the line doesn't build So uh, when you look at it, um, deterrence doesn't get points for effort So it either works or it doesn't And as I'll show you, it's incredibly difficult to prove when it's working Uh, But it's a lot easier to show when you intended to deter your adversary from invading from a particular vector of attack And that did not succeed, right? I'm going to put my page here. So um, let's talk about nuclear versus conventional. Uh, So thresholds of conflict between nuclear and conventional. uh, Although nuclear deterrence kind of dominate a lot of deterrence theory up until the end of the Cold War, you'll find most of the time what we spend our discussions on today is conventional deterrence. Um, Nuclear deterrence might be a little bit back in vogue uh, by the end of this month when U.S. nuclear posture and ballistic missile defense review come out. And we discuss, we get more into the conversation on modernization of nuclear arsenal. But most of the conversation for like the last 25 years has been about <coughs> conventional deterrence. Um, so nuclear deterrence is intrinsically based on deterrence by punishment. Well, why? Because we just don't have the technology to deny another adversary strategic nuclear arsenal attack, right? So strategic nuclear deterrence is all around punishment, getting a survivable nuclear deterrent that can retaliate. It's not about denial. You can't deny it. Um, the only area where nuclear weapons were used in denials of strategy is tactical nuclear weapons as part of conventional warfighting, right? Where you basically say we're going to fire nuclear weapons at you in a conventional conflict, literally uh, for battlefield employment. Um, While well, nuclear deterrence really highly credible preventing nuclear conflict between nuclear powers, uh, this type of deterrence might prevent conventional conflict to the extent where there's strong escalation anxiety, but it's very limited when there's mutually assured destruction. So the question is. How well does nuclear deterrence, which is deterrence by punishment, deter regular conventional conflicts between peers? Well, if it's like between the United States and Soviet Union and you have very strong anxiety that any conventional conflict will rapidly lead to nuclear escalation, it does a pretty good job most of the time, right? Although you will have crises, it does pretty well. Uh, How well does it deter other activities? Not necessarily. Uh, all that well, and it, it has pretty limited uh, deterrence value for things beyond the general conflict when there's mutually assured destruction. Why? Well, look, if you have really good good strategy oriented right around punishment, um, its effectiveness really begins to diminish if the person you're applying it to also has really good strategy in the round punishing you, meaning they're just as credible and that the cost you can impose on them, they can impose very similar costs onto you. And there you start to run into problems, right? So it's much more effective against people who you can threaten various types of asymmetric escalation, but they cannot retaliate against you in kind. Um, uh, Here I sort of outline, probably in in our conversation today, uh, strategic nuclear deterrence is still fixated on punishment. Tactical nuclear weapons, to the extent that some countries have an actual battlefield strategy around them, are more oriented towards denial. Some about tactical nuclear weapons that are left over don't even really clearly have a, uh, uh, an employment doctrine. Non strategic nuclear weapons are kind of interesting. Um, Russia has a fairly capable arsenal that's in this department and divides its weapon set into really three kinds of weapons tactical, tactical operational, non strategic, and strategic, right? And non-strategic weapons, if you want to think about what that is, that are things probably between 500 and 2,500 kilometers. And these are weapons that are slotted in into a deterrence-in-conflict role. Deterrence-in-conflict is really escalation control, which is, because people sometimes have a false dichotomy. They think, all right, deterrence is working. There's no war. War starts. Deterrence fails. failed. No, it's not true. Um, uh, deterrence can manage uh, escalation in conflict, either horizontal or vertical. You can reestablish deterrence once possibilities break out. So the war could be limited. It could be limited in duration, it could be limited in intensity, it could be limited in geography. There's many ways in conflict to actually bound the nature of the war. Um, and there are different capabilities that you can develop and apply. And you have to say, that's really gonna be the role of these capabilities, right? I, I, would, I would like to bound this conflict and I would like to see if I can use them to control escalation. Um, so there's one potential use today for non-strategic uh, nuclear weapons. <laughs> So, the essence of modern debate today with countries like Russia and others is whether denial or punishment is uh, the best strategy when it comes to conventional deterrence, and almost all policy establishments really prefer denial because, as I'll show you later, uh, they have a very rather negative view of punishment. I.e., punishment is a great strategy for nuclear deterrence, but people don't really like it for conventional deterrence. All right, um, general versus immediate. This is fairly straightforward. So. General deterrence is basically governed by a relationship between you and another adversary where uh, you both have robust forces capabilities but you don't expect any sort of immediate attack, meaning you don't believe that there's an impending attack or you're not in a threatened state. Immediate deterrence, these are cases where one side mobilizes or both sides mobilizes and there is a genuine threat of impending attack and then there's a question of whether or not you can deter in that particular crisis scenario. Um, So there's a big difference between uh, near term where you actually perceive that the other side does intend an attack or is considering it versus what is our normal state of life, which is general deterrence. We have nuclear weapons, they have nuclear weapons, and neither one of us thinks that tomorrow we're gonna wake up and launch an attack on each other. Um, What are cases like that? Well, uh, let's say ZAPA 2017 that just happened in September, uh, fairly straightforward strategic exercise by Russia, not very large. The United States does a brigade rotation through the area of operations, the United States decided to pause rotation out of the brigade that was being replaced at the same time as it introduced a second one. So they were both there for that exercise. Why? Well, um, because for whatever reason, undoubtedly, as actions speak louder than words, it reflected that in the United States, somebody thought that having two brigades there at the same time paused for several weeks would have Better credibility on the deterrence scale in the event that there was any sort of um, mal intent on behalf of Russia. That's it. And that was clearly a switch of thinking from general deterrence to the country's conducting a very large strategic operational exercise. We understand their capabilities. We're not 100% certain of their intent. So we want to increase our immediate deterrence. Now, the, the work is effective. You know, my personal opinion is if your pure nuclear state is willing to go to war with you and roll over one brigade, believe me, they're willing to roll over two brigades. Like, just trust me, okay? That's why we say there's no such thing as robust to your deterrence, right? It just, it, it. trust me, if they're willing to go to war with a pure nuclear power, the difference when their decision-making will not be between two, one brigade and two, that's for sure. But that being said, I'm just giving you a case from just a few months ago to, to illustrate. Central versus Extended. Um, This is really at the heart of modern deterrence today, and why people do not like punishment, and it's the heart of problems at deterrence. So, there's one country, uh, from which I hail, that has the largest extended deterrence network in the world, it's painted in blue. These are all countries to which we extend deterrence, okay? Um, And I congratulate you if you're on this list, because it means that in theory we have committed to trading New York for whatever capital it is you hail from, or any other one of your cities, right? Uh, The real question comes into whether or not we would actually do it if it came to it. And therein lies the challenge. So central or direct deterrence, very credible. Everybody's credible in the fact that if you attack them, they'll fight back. If you have nuclear weapons or other long-range offensive weapons, you're very credible in the fact that you'll fire them to defend yourself, right? Uh, Britain and France and Europe are very credible in that they have a central nuclear deterrent that's theirs, and they use their attack. Extended deterrence, on the other hand, has a lot of fundamental problems, right? And what is extended deterrence? Well, extended deterrence is deterring attack on a third party, um, but it's not inherently credible. It has to be made credible. And the real challenge with extended deterrence is how to make it credible. It's pretty complicated and not that easy to manage. Um, Look, ultimately extended deterrence is in the nuclear realm, it's about trying to make the incredible credible. How do you convince somebody that you'd be willing not only to just fight for a third party, but you'd be willing to commit suicide for? Them. This is very hard. It's incredibly hard to convince anybody that you commit suicide on behalf of a third person. That's issue one. On the conventional side of things, the big challenge on extended deterrence has always been unresolved. You may have capabilities, but but it's a constant struggle to demonstrate that you have interests at stake that you have the political resolve to actually go and fight on behalf um, in sort of general historical cases extended deterrence one has not done very well Okay, uh, it's, it's most of the conflicts that you see what you might consider to be potential breakdown deterrence I think almost two-thirds come from breakdowns of extended deterrence rather than central deterrence between powers uh, and, and I'll get into maybe the nuances of that QA. Q&A two um, in extended terms, punishment historically works a lot less effectively than denial. Why? Because if you're, if you're postured towards punishment, it's just very difficult to convince your adversary that you would actually be willing to commit to the conflict, right? It's just very hard to build and establish that resolve. It's much easier if you're there with your forces, and hence defense policy communities like the much simpler answer of, well, we'll build a marginal line, Right? We'll just put put brigades there, and we'll line them up and go along the border, and there'll be denial. We'll do that in Korea, and we'll do that in the Baltics, and we'll do it elsewhere, wherever there's a problem. We'll put the forces, and that'll help solve the credibility problem. This, of course, is really simplistic because I will assure you that even if you have a lot of capabilities, actually resolve is still much more important to establish. And there are plenty of historical cases where people had really good conventional deterrence by denial. I think uh, we are discussing it in some other session. Uh, and, and I really commend people to look at Foreign Affairs article, I think september issue, 2017, by Stephen Kotkin, one of our great historians on Soviet Union, called When Stalin Faced Hitler. First of all, it's a brilliant read just in general. It's just a great article. But second, uh, towards the end of the article, it gives us something interesting to our discussion here, which was, uh, looking back in history for that particular case, it's very easy to understand why France or, or the UK couldn't deter Germany from being Poland. The um, question was, why could the Soviet Union not deter Germany from invading the Soviet Union in 1941? So, Soviet Union had like easily 170 divisions to Germany's 200 forward position. It had a tremendous material advantage in armor, and it had a tremendous quality of advantage. And it did a lot to signal the extent of its capability. Why the Soviet Union invited lots of German officers to inspect its military formation so that they could see what they had, to convince them how much stuff they had what the stuff could do, etc., etc. And it's a big question. So having had all the forces they could possibly need to effect conventional deterrence by denial against Germany, they did not succeed in dissuading Germany from attacking him in 1941, which is a really fascinating case of failure. Why? Um, so it really came to an issue of resolve. Capabilities didn't do it. Stalin became trapped in his own decision-making cycle and path-dependent. He was desperate to avoid a conflict with Germany, and he got trapped in a set of decisions that signaled very clearly to Hitler that he was desperate to avoid a war. And then, when he received indications that he had gone from general deterrence to potentially even media deterrence, where he received indications that Germany was very likely to attack, he then got trapped, and then he believed that anything he would do to try to further bolster his coercive credibility, capabilities and resolve, would actually lead to the outbreak of the conflict, meaning if he made certain moves, they would be perceived as escalatory and would be used by Germany as the cause's belly for the war, which we know they ultimately declared. And so he got trapped in really trying to avoid the conflict, and then when the time came to take certain <laughs> steps that may or may not have succeeded in, in reestablishing the terms, but at the very least would have given the Soviet Union a much stronger fighting chance from the very outset of the war, he didn't want to do them. He didn't want to do them because he was self-deterred. He was afraid that that would be used as a German justification for invasion. Right? And Germany's, Germany read the Soviet Union incredibly well in 1941. And that is actually, to me, a much more fascinating case of the outbreak of World War II than what happened in 1939, although we can discuss that, too. That was much worse because the Soviet Union had all the men and material could possibly want to deter the Germany by denial, and it didn't work. Sorry, I kind of harped on this point a bit, but um, okay, so uh, weapons of course and capabilities and force structure have a role on uh, how you strategize around deterrence. Um, One issue you find is why flexible deterrence came around is. So early on, the strategy of mass retaliation worked insofar as the United States could retaliate against the Soviet Union with nuclear weapons, but the Soviet Union could not retaliate against the United States. So you could credibly have a deterrence by punishment strategy with nuclear weapons, foreign invasion in Europe, and it would work. And as soon as the Soviet Union developed a credible capability to reach the United States, right, with ICBMs whatnot, that strategy very quickly became incredible, meaning the deterrence we extended to NATO, to European allies, wasn't credible anymore because we were basically making the argument of, well, if you invade and take the rest of Germany, we'll trade Washington, D.C., and New York for it. And the answer to that is, that's really easy to say. I'm very skeptical you will do it. Right? Um, and that's where flexible response came about, which was, okay, we need to tier the strategy. And it was still, how to put it, these are far from perfect solutions. Right? Um, came about to basically say, we will have a war-fighting strategy of conventional terms by denial. We have a nuclear escalation strategy that will also be oriented around denial. With tactical nuclear weapons, and then if the conflict escalates beyond that, then we will employ strategic nuclear weapons in retaliation. Right. So it was graduated and tiered, and it was a lot of effort was put into making the uh, the first two parts of our strategy actually credible because it wasn't easy. For example, um, tactical nuclear weapons were intentionally placed in the path of advancing Soviet columns so that that would put NATO into a user lose scenario to in some ways increase the likelihood that they would be used right early on in the conflict. So again, because questions come into, well, but would you really be the first to use tactical nuclear weapons in the war? So these are different steps that, throughout historically, we've, people have done and used in, uh, in setting up their deterrent strategy in order to try to get credibility where it's not inherently there. And. Some places were very successful in the case of France, because when France established a central nuclear deterrent, they were very credible in the fact that they for sure would use it if the Soviet Union went past Germany and invaded France. Okay, um, Alliance politics. And here, this is one of my favorite discussion topics. A lot of times in modern discourse, alliance politics is, con- is confused with the deterrence conversation. In fact, you hear it all the time. Even just recently, NATO went from its European ERI, European Reassurance Initiative, to... European deterrence initiative, right, like you just changed the name last year as though you could simply change and say, okay, we were doing reassurance for allies, now we're doing deterrence with the same force and capabilities. Yeah, that's not at all how it works, right? Um, So deterrence is principally a conversation with your enemy, your adversary. Alliance politics is a conversation with your allies, your friends, and they're very two different people, right, and they're two different psychological conversations. And the problems you're trying to manage in these issues are very different, they overlap. If I was to draw a Venn diagram, there's an area of overlap, but it's not like they're completely separate. Um, There are things that both deter enemies and reassure your allies at the same time. You can do both, um, for sure. But it's important to understand that things that deter don't necessarily assure, and things that assure don't necessarily deter at all, right? They're two different things, for example, Let's, let's say a couple of historic cases. Uh, introduction of mm, intermediate nuclear-range weapons in Europe, right, uh, early 80s. So these might have had um, a good deterrent effect, but they created a lot of issues uh, in Allied perception, and they're worried about being in trap and escalation, right? Or where you place your forces and which forces you place them, like um, U.S. Marines or units, let's say, in Norway, where mm-hmm. if you're in Norway and you're having a conversation during the Cold War um you, for whatever reason, don't know that Norway bordered the Soviet Union still borders Russia the entire time of the Cold War but nobody had this argument where they said, you know, it'd be really easy for the Soviet Union to invade NATO from Norway and there's nobody there and they can just take NATO territory this, this is a real contingency throughout the Cold War so what do we do? Um, and the first sort of, first, maybe, typical just answer would be, I know the terms by denial, we'll put troops over there, right, right on the border with the Soviet Union, and we can also do punishment, they can be tripwire troops, right? And the original the answer might have been, you know, that's a great idea, let's get American troops in there, we we'll get skin in the game, we'll make extended deterrence more credible. But they're very worried that, well, um, uh, while that may be a good deterrent, they would fall into an trap problem, which is, the Soviet Union would then respond and put more forces on the border with Norway, and it would lead to a negative security uh, outcome in that, meaning a, a, a net sum, that's a minus, and it would prove escalatory, and they would become trapped because now U.S. troops on Norway's border have a say in what happens in the conflict, right, because they can't predict necessarily what the United States will choose to do with its forces, what the interactions will be. So basically they said, well, you know what, let's, um, let's, it's great to have your forces for assurance, but let's put them somewhere much further down south in Norway so they're not on the border, so they don't suffer from these problems. So, the two different problems you're trying to solve between alliance politics and deterrence. In alliance politics, you're managing entrapment versus abandonment. And this is constantly the Goldilocks zone between allies that you're trying to balance. So, you got allies that are fearing abandonment, that you won't come to their aid, won't come to the rescue. And then there's you, of course, being afraid that your allies will get you into a war that you're trying to avoid, right? That uh, They'll engage in reckless behaviors, and alternatively, when you deploy capabilities on your allies' soil, you say, listen, we're going to get these brigades, we're going to get these capabilities here to deter your enemy. I got it. Once you get them, your allies also begin to be a little worried because now they're entrapped by you. They're not sure what you will do. I mean, you don't live, Let's say, for example, it's an Asia-Pacific region. Oh, we're maybe 60% United States. Power projection balance towards the Asia-Pacific region versus Europe. Okay? We have forces based in Japan. Of we forces based in South Korea, um, when your allies who are hosting your forces understand that you might be happily willing to engage in a conflict with a pure adversary, and that conflict will play out primarily on their territory on their soil, they're very worried about being potentially trapped, right? Because you may well survive the conflict with minimal cost, whereas they assuredly will not. And that's the same problem the Europeans typically are at. Um, so uh, I typically find that uh, deterrence is actually a lot simpler than alliance politics and that assurance is almost a bottomless bucket, meaning for your own allies that are very exposed, you have to consistently do things to assure them. And what's kind of the difference between these activities, what they look like? So assurance measures typically start from political statements, speeches of assurance and commitments by your political leadership to exercises with your allies, to forward deployed forces on your allies' territory that are already there, to join forces that are integrated under command, meaning yours and theirs are there in their country, forward base, um, uh, So that you basically go from all, establishing all these states to establishing capability to making it integrated. And in cases, for example, like uh, your IEDI, we've basically done through that. We've checked all the, box, all the boxes. Um, so... Conventional deterrence is really the essence of the debate today. Um, denial has a much better track record than punishment, and and in some ways this little picture illustrates to you why. Uh, because correlation of interest is much more important than actual correlation of forces in play. Um, why is unreliable? Well, because denial, if you have enough force and you convince your adversary that they can't win, will work. Punishment, right, no problem. Punishment is problematic because your adversary decides how much is enough, and you don't know how much is enough for them. This is the biggest challenge. Example, Kosovo uh, bombing campaign, right, 1999. You don't know. Will you have to bomb Serbia for 30 days, 60 days? 78 days What is actually the breaking point for them to say I've taken so much punishment that I'm no longer willing to pursue the thing I'm you're trying to determine from pursuing? Um, and how do you right-size that how you estimate that so it's an unsafe bet? Where punishment I think to me is a much better strategy is in two cases one where denial is basically unobtainium Gee, it's great to have the best, but sometimes you know you can't let the best be the enemy of the good right Two, it's way too expensive to do, and if you were to do it anywhere, you'd be bankrupt as a country, especially if you're a country that handed out extended terms guarantees to that large blue map I showed you, right? Um, three, there could be real problems with the things you would need to do to affect the terms by denial, because the terms by denial, of course, means a very large military presence on somebody else's borders, right? And that can lead to, we'll assure you, security dilemmas and force bidding contests. Um, so... Denial's big dark side is, of course, if everybody has a denial strategy, it can actually result in a really terrible war, right? Because what you get are spiral model decision making, that is, if everybody gets together and they make the best rational choices that are designed to avoid war, and everybody says, listen, in order to make sure that I'm secure, to maximize my security, I just need three divisions here, all right? And that other side sees your three divisions and says, okay, just to be safe from my end, I also need the terms by denial, and I'm going to need four divisions on my side of that border. And you will look back on it, and your people will have the, the key bureaucratic argument whether we should have more divisions or way more divisions. And maybe you'll decide that you need five now, or you need eight or ten. And it will keep going, and it will result in a security dilemma, and it will result in a force bidding contest, right? Um, and it will be a consequence of very rational, judicious steps taken to achieve security that at the very least, example, this is how we stack forces throughout the Cold War, right, um, across, across Central Germany, right, which is built, 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 built until we had millions of men under arms and millions of men behind them in, uh, ready for mobilization, right? So if I show you the force stacks where that's a classical result of just a force bidding contest, and you can get this, you can make this happen literally anywhere, um, prospect theory I had here is basically that, look, uh, principally decision makers in international affairs are much more willing to take risks to avert what they perceive are losses rather than take risks to pursue opportunities and gains. And so what will happen is, what the challenge of conventional deterrence by denial is when you create a security dilemma, countries are willing to take much greater risks not to live in a permanent state of insecurity. If you put them to a decision whether or not Option one for them is to live with a large amount of your forces on their borders. So they are always insecure because you have the capabilities. They don't know what your intent is. Your leadership changes. Your intent can change. Relations can change all the time. Capabilities stay, right? Uh, they may choose to take risks, to create a crisis, right, to avert it. Cuban Missile Crisis is an example. Oh, I see you'd like to deploy intermediate-range nuclear for- forces in Cuba, right? I'm not willing to live with five minutes worth of notice for flight time of a missile from Cuba. I will take the risk of of a crisis that will lead to a nuclear escalation rather than live in a permanent state of insecurity. Um, And there are other cases historically, it doesn't always happen, but countries are much more wary about taking these sort of risks. All right. um, So, and here I'll just speed up to wrap up these last two slides. So messaging and signaling for credibility is one of the biggest challenges, which is, okay, everybody tries to sound credible. How do you actually do it to be effective? Well, um, you need both political messaging, where you make claims, commitments, whatnot, so that going back on them would have political consequences for your leadership, both in international and domestic politics. Uh, The other one is you take a lot of things to basically build up your hoard, your chips, Um, in course of credibility in the game, you show that you're ready for war, that you're ready, willing to accept casualties, losses. Russia, for example, does this with all sorts of domestic readiness exercises, mobilization exercises, and civil defense exercises to demonstrate that actually they are preparing for a general total war, they are willing to accept casualties and losses, and there's all sorts of people involved in these processes in government that are actually planning for them. Um, And then in, in a crisis, you basically, you're basically engaging in a game of competitive risk-taking, so you eliminate some of your own options intentionally to make yourself seem more credible. That is, it is less likely that you will turn away down the path you've taken in escalation because you burned your own bridges behind you. Um, so basically, to wrap it up, the terms ultimately is a quest around coercive credibility, which is at least uh, how, how do you establish the credibility, both with your capabilities, but mostly with the amount of resolve. That you're able to signal to your adversaries. Alliance politics tend to be, by and large, a quest for assurance. How do you assure your allies? Because they always want more. And a lot of your allies, the tricky thing in alliance politics is allies are sneaky. At some point they feel assured already, but because structurally they have an incentive to extract security benefits from their all-powerful patron, they will keep not being assured. Okay? And every year they will come to you for more assurance, even though they were assured some time ago, but they will keep coming back and say, you know, I'm still very scared. Last year I needed NATO battle groups, this year I need PAC-3s, and next year I'm going to come up with something else I need, and the year after that will be something else. You know why? Because everyone likes free stuff, who doesn't like free things and security guarantees from the patron, and I can get you and untrap you more in the commitment to my own security guarantees, Right? Um, so, this is a, the, why the alliance politics to me is a perpetual quest to get assurance right. Okay, Andrew, I hope, hope I'm not exhausting too much of my time. I mean, again, I do a Thank you. It's actually.